This week on Life and Faith. I saw one of them look at us and smile. I think, is that good news or bad news? Is that good news or bad? And just feeling that tension. And then when we got it, was just this unbelievable euphoria. Um, and everyone said, we did it, we did it, we did it. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the Isa army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart, and with me in the studio is Mark Stevens, who works with us at CPX. Good to see you, Mark. It's good to be here. Yeah, great. Well, that's 20 years since the Sydney Olympic Games of 2000. Uh, it's the anniversary of that sort of epic moment for our city, and there's been a lot of reminiscing going on lately. Can you believe it's 20 years, Mark? Well, I can believe it's 20 years, but it just constantly reminds me of how old I am. I remember when I was in higher ed that I was teaching a generation of students that couldn't remember this event. Yeah, I know. That's a bit, it is a bit frightening, isn't it? Now, I, Mark, have vivid memories of that. What I thought was a magical couple of weeks. The world had come to our city, and despite some, I don't know if you remember this, but some morbid predictions that the whole thing was going to be a disaster. You know, Sydney sparkled in perfect spring sunshine. The huge range of events, and there's an awful lot, obviously, in an Olympics, both the direct events as well as sort of surrounding things. They all sort of seemed to go off smoothly and a true miracle in Sydney. Even the traffic flowed. Yes, even the traffic, even public transport worked. I can still remember, it's the most vivid memory I have is that this was the first time in my life I felt like the trains are running on time and they're all going to the right place. <laughs> it was a wonderful, wonderful time. It sort of made you realise what it would be like to or imagine what it could be like if it was always like that. But it was brilliant, wasn't it? Now, there were some cynics at the time. We, we sometimes forget how much talk there was beforehand of it not working out. Maybe it would all be a disaster. Now, Mark, from conversations we've had, I think you were a bit of a skeptic at first, weren't you? Well, I'm a sport tragic, Simon, yeah. but I was skeptical about the fact that the tickets to the events would be worth anything. So I, it was a lottery, if you remember, mm -hmm. to be able to get to the big events. And I didn't put my hand up for the lottery because I just assumed that once the big tickets were gone, once the 100 metres final, once the 400 metres freestyle was gone, nothing else would be worth going to. And so I basically thought, I'll watch this on TV. Were you confident from the start that it would go well, Simon? Well, I was a bit worried because there was a lot of talk, but no, no, I was a true believer from the beginning. So I, th you know, I was in, in for whatever I could get my hands on. Now, Mark, what did you get to in the end? Well, I finally got convinced, Simon. <laughs> I finally got convinced some, like it was two weeks. And so I think it was in the second week, a friend finally convinced me, you must go to some Olympic events. You just have to go to Olympic events. It doesn't just matter. Experience it. One Olympic event, you must get there. And so I went and saw European handball, a sport <laughs> I've not been particularly proficient in nor watched <laughs> ever before. And I think I went and watched some minor league European nations peg the ball at one another's goals. It was fabulous. Yes, well, you might you might have seen me there if you'd look carefully. Because look, I went I went to everything I could. I went to the triathlon, the hockey, the athletics, basketball, and as you mentioned, European handball. And I loved every minute. And at the end, I honestly 
had post-Olympic blues. I can imagine. And look, like you, I'm sort of into all sports, but even I hadn't anticipated how in that couple of weeks, how engrossed I would get into things like archery or trap shooting or badminton. (laughs) It was just, it was on for, you know, it was on for me. Um, But I did get to, I I was in the lottery, I got tickets to the 100 metre final at the athletics. So this was like a big, that's obviously, that's the blue, they talk, talk about that being the blue ribbon event of the games. So my wife and I went, but we were, I don't know if you remember, but in those days, even the Sydney stadium, which is huge, had these extension pieces that went sort of way up into the vast distance yes. <laughs> that, that you could sit in. And we were at the very back of that. Like I was a couple of rows from the back of that. The joke was we were so high that the people who would parachute into the stadium would pull the ripcord after they passed our seats. Did you receive medical oxygen up there, Simon? (laughs) Well, we nearly needed it. We were so high, Mark, that the athletes were like tiny ants and you'd see them start running and they'd be a third of the way down the track before you'd hear the gun go off. (laughs) The starter's gun. So, you know, give you a bit of a feel for that. But it didn't matter. We were we were in the in the stadium. It was a festival of fun and celebration. And it was so good to be there. So look, today on Life and Faith, we're talking the Sydney Olympics. We have an athlete, a journo, and a politician who was key in Sydney getting the games in the first place, which is a whole story in itself. So first up, Bruce Baird, who was New South Wales Government Olympics Minister for the bid to win the Games. Now, Bruce has been out celebrating the anniversary of the Games this week, and he was kind enough to reminisce with me about those magical days two decades ago now. I was the uh, Minister for the Olympics uh, from 1989 until we won in 93, and the first part was chairing a committee as to whether we should bid for the Games. Uh, could we afford it? Uh, where should we have it? Uh, who should run it, etc. So that took several months and we had some high-powered business people that were all appointed by Negrana. And then when we did that, we made a recommendation to the Cabinet. We had to also get the support of the federal government, the Aboriginal community and the media before we decided to go ahead. Now, when we think about the bid itself, uh, it only got over the line by two votes. It was was sort of a long odds to win. I think Beijing was the... The favourite. That must have been an incredible campaign to get that. Well, that's right, because there were. It was seen that there were certain inducements offered by some of the um, bidders of the Olympics, without going into the details. Mm-hmm. And so we knew we had to overcome that, and we concentrated on the people who were the keenest on sport, who were really concerned about the athletes and their welfare and how all that would go. Uh, but it was close. And we kept on losing votes in the last week, uh, particularly in the Middle East Africa area. We were losing votes. We had suspicions as to why, but regardless of that, uh, there were people that we got on board we didn't expect to, um, but it really was uh, not until Manchester went out and we basically got most of their preferences. So that was significant as well. Can you take us back to that moment? I know you were there. It must have been a fabulous Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I thought uh, this could be the end of my career because I thought if we lose, uh, everyone will stand aside and point at me. He was the one who spent the money, who took us on this journey, and it's his fault. And um, my whole body was just 
intention all the way. I was cramping in my legs and I was trying to interpret uh, because I had dinner with the night before with Flora Zavo, who one stage was Miss Venezuela. That was a long time ago. No. Um, and we took her out to dinner with Judy and some other athletes and so on the night before. And um, she was a f- strong supporter of Sydney. She said, how will I let you know if you're in the final round of votes? So we talked about various ways and she said, I know, I'll wear a scarf. So she came in and I, of course, told everybody that that's what, how she said. Look for the scarf. So she came in and then, then when she came in, she stood up and flung the scarf around <laughs> her. And um, then I was trying to look because I knew uh, there were three people who did the auditing of the report on the Olympic Committee. And I just looked at them and I saw one of them look at us and smile. Anita de France from the USA and another guy from Belgium uh, who was an Olympic member. And I saw him staring at us. I think, is that good news or bad news? Is that good news or bad? And just feeling that tension. And then when we got it, it was just this unbelievable euphoria. And just everyone hugged each other. And the moment of uh, pure joy as we, um, you know, everyone said, we did it, we did it, we did it. Now, I have to jump in here. That phone call that you can hear that Bruce didn't take, astonishingly, given the conversation we were having, was Ian Thorpe, who, of course, as a 17-year-old, won the first of his five swimming gold medals on the first night of competition in Sydney, also breaking his own world record in the 400 metres. Anyway, let's carry on. The announcement of Sydney winning the Games ahead of Beijing is now the stuff of legend. The moment had come. Five cities waited as the IOC voting delegates filed into the Monte Carlo Auditorium. Only they knew who would get the Olympics. The crowd were looking for signs. They didn't have to wait long. The the winner is Cindy. It was joy mixed with pure relief. Unbelievable. They had worked so hard. But we did it. We did it. And it was all of Sydney. They did a fantastic job and we're just all thrilled. (laughs) There's Bruce Baird back in 1993 at the announcement of Sydney getting the nod for the Olympics. It was a huge moment. I also wanted to ask Bruce what was his strongest feeling about the actual event as he looks back 20 years later. There was a lot of joy because being there the first time we visited Hamish Bay, um, we're either going to build it where the current stadiums are downtown Sydney at the showground, or else it was, you know, one site was in Western Sydney, the other one was Homebush Bay. We went out there, it was depressing. Mm. Uh, we went at the back of the brick pit first, it was half full, it was partly raining, it was desolate, and we all stared at one another. Then we went to the abattoirs and just a few sad cows wandering around. Even more depressed. And I thought, oh, good grief, will this ever work? And then we found there was a toxic waste dump (laughs) there. Uh, So then when you came back and everything was, you know, I'd obviously been out there a whole number of times and in between, but just that sense of just, this is amazing. What we all did collectively as a city of Sydney and just joining together, it was a moment of pure joy. Now, the Sydney Olympics really did feel special to me and plenty of others that I've spoken to about this recently. So I wanted to ask a serious sports journalist about this. Greg Baum is a long-time award-winning sports writer for The Age newspaper, 
and he's one of the best. His main beat is cricket and footy, but he has reported on plenty of Olympic Games. Here's Greg. Sydney was actually the first I went to, but I've been to every Games from Sydney onwards, and right now I should be in Tokyo. Yes, what a shame. Well, hopefully, I hope you get there next year. Now, your yeah. experience of Sydney, I'm really interested in, because I think you uh, confessed to me that you were a bit of a cynic beforehand. Well, I, I was, but I think most people in Melbourne were. Um, we thought, and I wrote this at the time, that, that Sydney would, would, would do the show and the style, but would lack in the substance and in a complex logistic exercise like the Olympic Games, that would turn out to be a disaster. And I couldn't have been more wrong. That's fascinating because I think there were people in Sydney who felt like this, right? Um, <laughs> but how wrong were you? Like, what was it actually like? Well, it was acclaimed at the time as the best Olympics ever. Now, every country claims that every time. Yeah. Uh, and, and realistically, it happens only every four years. So each game should be better than the last. But there are a lot of people I know around the world still who still think of Sydney as the gold standard for Olympics. So personally, I thought London just about matched it. Um, but, okay. but that's the only one since that has had Sydney's, um, uh, it, it was spectacular, uh, the locations were spectacular, uh, the sport itself was high quality, you would expect that, but everything worked, the trains worked, people were happy, uh, and um, Sydney, I think, uh, if they didn't start the cult of the cheery volunteer they certainly took it to a new level and, and that has been the watermark for Olympics ever since then. These thousands of people who all they got for it was a uniform, you know, a t-shirt and a pair of shorts. And one in particular sticks in my mind because I was staying in, in, um, at Darling Harbour and catching the train from Central every day to Olympic Park. And there are two or three of these volunteers standing at the ends of the platforms at, at Central stations. And they were, they were there just to make sure people getting on and off the trains knew where they were going. And I thought, this is as close as they're going to get to the Olympics. They might get a couple of tickets to the European handball at the end to thank them. And, and so it struck me as the most thankless task, really. And yet they did not miss a beat for the whole two weeks. They smiled at everyone. They had something happy to say the whole time. And people responded to that. So that became my little microcosm of what worked about the Sydney Olympics. It felt special to me. Did you feel a similar thing? Well, the Olympics do anyway. Um, I've become sceptical, if not cynical, over the years about the redemptive power of sport because I've seen the lows as well as the highs. But I do believe that there is such a thing as the Olympic spirit. In ancient times, they declared a truce at the time of the Olympics. So all the wars stopped and everyone travelled to wherever they needed to go to get to the Olympic Games. And there's a little element of that about the modern Olympics uh, where for, for that two weeks, everyone goes to a, a different level. And, and Sydney had that in spades. Mm. It felt to me, having just been, it's the only time I've ever been to any sort of Olympics, just really something special and it kind of illuminated a potential for us as human beings and the way we interact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first day of the Olympics, I covered the triathlon, which was then a newish Olympic event. And that was through the streets of Sydney and out, out to um, Macquarie's chair and all around yeah. uh, the little harbour there. And, and that's where it first struck me. It was a beautiful day. And uh, there was an Australian girl, um, God forgive me, I can't think of her name now, but she was favourite for the event. Uh, there were people from all nations lining the streets and through the parks. And I remember a little gang of Australian supporters giving it the 
Aussie, 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 which I don't particularly care for, but you, you can forgive <laughs> it at that time. And from across the street, a little gang of um, Japanese supporters, I think they were, responding, oi, oi, oi. I thought, uh-huh. oh, that's a bit different. And in the end, um, uh, the Australian girl didn't win. She was pipped by an Austrian, I think. But at that moment, everyone seemed to realise that doesn't matter. She competed and we saw a great event and it was a great event. And so let's, let's be happy about that. Yeah. Do you have some standout memories from Sydney in 2000? Well, I have the one that, um, that everyone has. Everyone um, has. But, but yeah. um, without sounding too pumped up about it, I was sitting level with the finishing line, probably about 20 yards away from the finishing line that night. Um, and uh, the Cathy Freeman night, of course, we're, we're talking about, uh, which, which is burned in the memory uh, for, for her race and for, for, the, for what it signified and for the way she conducted herself. But there are a lot of other great events that night and people uh, tend to forget about this. The, uh, the, the women's pole vault was on the same night um, where Tatiana Grigorieva won a medal. Um, there was a, a spectacular men's long jump that night. There were uh, five and 10,000 metre races, I think, in, um, on the track that also produced spectacular results. And, and so I was just transfixed by it. And I still think that one night in Sydney um, surpasses all others in terms of a single day of sport in, in my, as you say, now quite long experience of covering sport. Yeah. And Greg, what is it that you think events like this at their best give us as human beings? Well, for Australians, um, perhaps a, a chance to look outwards uh, look at the rest of the world and, and understand the bigger picture, to feel a little bit special as well, as to, to have the chance to host the world at that time and make a pretty good fist of it, I think. And, and I guess in the theme of what we've talked about, um, a sort of transcendental opportunity to, to sit above the normal run of life and, and feel that maybe there is... In the end, there is something unifying in human nature as well as plenty that's divisive. That's sports writer Greg Baum from The Age in Melbourne. Bruce Baird also thought there was something special about those two weeks in Sydney 20 years ago. I think uh, Cathy Freeman's run was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I just saw the video the other night of it all and just brought it all home and just um, how amazing it was. Um, I think all the volunteers and how excited they were and just that sense of support in the city was overwhelming. And if, you know, bipartisan, everyone together, rich, poor, no matter, you could sit outside, watch it on the big screens, you could have a hot dog or a pie. We're all in it together, so, you know, that's something that may take a long while to repeat. You know, I think innately there's good and bad in all of us, and I think it brought out the best, Mm. the best in terms of being concerned with your fellow man, the best in terms of coming together in a country to cheer. But, you know, if we lost, we won or lost, it'd be exciting if we got a gold medal, but we also... Eric the Eel we cheered we cheered yeah. for. And the Paralympics came to a new level. Yes. Uh, you know, and I heard the most emotional speech yesterday was not from the former premiers or the organisers or so on. It's one of the Paralympians and said, this changed my life, mm. the way that um, people with disability were regarded and the way that we were able to compete and encouraged and cheered. Mm. It was amazing.
This is Life and Faith from CPX, and we're talking the 20th anniversary of the Sydney Olympics. And Mark Stevens is with me in the studio. Mark, I thought it would be great to hear from an athlete from those games. Yeah, indeed. That's a perspective that most of us don't get to have, and that will be an insight. Yeah, well, Liesl Tesh is a Paralympian who has been, get this, to seven Olympic Games. Now, Sydney was her third Olympics in wheelchair basketball, where she gained a silver medal. She also got a silver in Athens and a bronze in Beijing before, here she goes, changing sports to sailing, where she earned gold medals in both London and Rio. She's doing well. (laughs) She's doing pretty well. And then to add another credential to her CV, these days she is the New South Wales Labor member for Gosford on the Central Coast. Achievement is her thing. (laughs) So here's Liesl Tesh. So we're casting our mind back to Sydney. A lot of us think of it as a very special time, a magical time actually, but is that how you experienced it? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt and more. I mean, the journey we went on from when it was announced the winner is Sydney, as I think as Paralympic athletes, especially educating Sydney and the greater Australia, what a Paralympics even was and getting them enthusiastic enough to come to the Games was, I mean, a journey we went there before the even Games were on. So when the Games were on, it was just out of this mind and you wonder how as an athlete you ever managed the joy and that adrenaline, but we did. Yeah, that's fantastic, isn't it? And What was it like to compete in a home Olympics? You've been to a few Olympics, but how did it compare? I think the privilege of being alive to compete in a home games is something that it's just such amazing thing to be in front of your families and friends, like to go into the home stadium, like into the opening ceremony and have no clue where they are, but still be looking for them the whole time. But then also, I mean, the busloads of kids from the school that I taught at who came down and had signs that said, go Liesl, go Aussie women's wheelchair basketball team. And I actually knew them and they filled the stadiums. And that, like, it wasn't just my school. It was just so many people that we had letters writing to who came on the journey with us to make that game so incredibly special. Tell me a little bit more about the the way in which perhaps Sydney was important in the development of Paralympics. We opened it up to tickets we'd never before played in front of packed houses. So we had this $20 experimental ticket to get through the gate. So for the first time ever in the lives of Paralympians, we played in front of packed houses, which in itself was just absolutely amazing. But for me, the memories of zooming around in the Paralympic Village, and I had green hair at that stage, but people would come up to us and mob us and get autographs. But it wasn't, it was conversations that was not about what is wrong with that lady, what sport does that person play? And I think that attitudinal shift, the privilege we've had that in our city, the attitudinal shift, they were school kids at that time, but they are employees and then also employers of the future. So we, through those games, through the exposure and those warm memories of the volunteers who participated, it was not about disability, it was about ability. And that's put a place in our hearts, but also I think into the psyche of a generation of Australians, which we then carry with us. Can you talk about the kind of the spirit of that games in particular because I mean perhaps that's true I remember talking to Greg Baum he said yeah it's true of all Olympics but you know something felt special about it and I wonder if you can comment on that the sort of the spirit of the experience uh, that you saw as well as 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 well as experience yourself. I mean I just think the amazing opening and closing ceremony with all those fantastic Aussie artists that showcased us to the world in an incredible way but to me as soon as you say the spirit of the games that 
Well, it makes me cry. The volunteers' uniform that was the spirit of Sydney. We all know what colour it was. We all know if someone, we knew someone was a volunteer, but the warmth with which they embraced the games and welcomed people from around the world and us as athletes and our families and friends in to watch the games, I think is symbolic of the friendliness that was Sydney for that two weeks. And I think the city really... People tell us about the time they had in Sydney and people got tickets to come watch Sydney and the city stopped and we were a friendly, beautiful, open and warm, heartfelt and also an accessible city. So I think that, I don't know, how do you sum that? It is the spirit that was Sydney 2000. It feels like sometimes in these moments you get a glimpse at least of what humanity can be at its best. Absolutely. And I I treasure, like to be in a room the other day with breakfast with the people who put those games together. Previously, as an athlete, those people had only ever been in the newspaper and on the stage. But to thank them for the gift that they have given us as athletes, but also the gift they've given our city. Humanity can do this. And it's really weird, but you think the concept of COVID, we're all in this together. It's not very often that we get a time. It's definitely not the same thing, but a time when all of a sudden politics is out the window and we are all in this together. Sydney was definitely a time where we were all in this together and politics aside, life aside, we stopped and we had a good time and we celebrated and we partied and anyone who's involved in that remembers it with such fondness. What role does sport play in that? I mean, you've played all sorts of sports your whole life. You, you must have a view on what sport can contribute in this really positive way. Absolutely. I think sport, I mean, we, I'm so lucky. We are so lucky as Australian athletes that we live in this absolutely sport-passionate nation. And it's weird, like as people with disabilities especially, that was, an, I think, a Paralympics where we had a very young Kurt Fernley and a very, very, very young Dylan Alcott. But that put some impressions in their minds as well of what was possible. So I think prior to the Paralympics being in Sydney, we'd never seen anyone with a disability in mainstream media, like in, in the spotlight and over and over again repeating it, that name Louise Savage who lit the torch for the Paralympics, she became a household name. We were watching Louise Savage at the Olympics and then at the Paralympics. So just by putting people with disabilities into people's lounge rooms and normalising it, I think sport has the power to bring people together but also to change people's attitudes with whatever message you're taking out there with athletes. Now, have you had an opportunity, I think you have, have you had an opportunity to reminisce about Sydney 2000? And when you have, what have been the feelings that it's evoked? Oh, it's got a million squillion amazing feelings. And I think one of them is after we won our silver medal, it's like, oh, I feel crappy. We lost gold, but we won that silver medal and we partied so hard, but we had wheelchair stacks on. We had electric wheelchair stacks on and partying so hard that we had to write a letter of an apology to the sponsors of that tent. But I think that in itself says such a good story that people with disabilities can party just as hard as anyone else as well. And it was, it was just an amazing party on every single level, an amazing unifier and fond, fond, fond memories. Is there any sadness as you reflect back on this? I can't believe it's 20 years. Can't believe it's 20 years and I'm definitely not 20 years older. And those good memories we have are so clear. There's definitely no sadness. I think there's excitement when I hear that maybe 2032 is a possibility as a bid further down the track. I'll be ancient, but I'll be, I'll be buying some tickets and cheering as loud as I can. Well, that's seven-time Paralympian Liesl Tesh. Now, what do you think, Mark? You and I are hardly Olympics veterans, but I wonder, what do you make of human beings and their desire to commune and to gather and to celebrate? Does it tell us something about ourselves that's worth reflecting on? 
Yeah, I think it does. I think it talks about those breakthrough moments that we have. And actually, I have a bit of a story here, Simon. One of the times that I visited London, I was staying with some friends uh, and I was staying for free, except they made me pay one piece of rent for the entire week. And that was I had to join them at a Take That concert. Now, let's get it on the record and in the public square that I am no fan of Take That, a boy band from the 1990s onwards. You don't need to be embarrassed about this. No, and I went to the Take That concert and I knew one song and thought I was going to have the most awful night. It was going to be the price of admission to free accommodation. I went. This band had sold out eight times at Wembley that week in London. That's 640,000 tickets, Simon. I went and joined a crowd of 80,000 people. And it was one of the funnest nights of my life mm. because being part of a group of people who are focused on one object and celebrating the joys of music and of life, there's just something infectious about it. And I still hate their music. <laughs> and so there's something quite remarkable about these moments where we actually sit there and go, you know what? I can focus together on Kathy Freeman's run. I still remember that night in Darling Harbour, as others have talked about in this episode. I still remember that night. And the joy of being able to forget our petty differences and to be able to celebrate together, at least for a moment. And I think there is something powerful in that, in that moment. Yeah, I, I find this really fascinating. And you would go to another take that concert, right? So long as the crowd is there. Yeah, right. Not that, in a socially distanced that, age. That's the experience. Well, look, it's interesting to me that Greg Baum and Bruce Baird and Liesl Tesh all felt that there's something real that you could call, you know, the spirit of these kinds of events. The sense that they tap into something intangible that's still an important part of the human condition. Well, let's finish with Bruce Baird. I think there is a spirit. It was a spirit of, of goodwill. And I, I heard Kathy Freeman talking about that last night, but I sensed it. It was a special God moment mm. in a way. What does it tell us about who we are as human beings, this desire to commune with each other and celebrate big mm. events like mm. this? I think it shows that there's a special spiritual quality to lift us high, to celebrate others to rejoice together, to join with each other, um, success and failure equally. Uh, in many ways, it's the triumph of the human spirit, but I think uh, emboldened by the divine spirit as well. This has been Life of Faith with me, Simon Smart, and also Mark Stevens. A big thank you today to former Olympics Minister Bruce Baird, sports writer for The Age, Greg Baum, and seven-time Paralympian, Liesl Tesh. And thanks to our producer this week, Alan Douthwaite. Now, we'll be taking a break for two weeks, and we'll be back with the next season of Life and Faith on October 15. And something to bring to the attention of Life and Faith listeners, CPX's annual Richard Johnson lecture was to be held in March this year. Now, unsurprisingly, it was postponed, and it's now going to be a live-streamed event. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, who will be familiar to Life and Faith listeners, will be delivering the lecture. Its title is Free to Be Me, The Forgotten Story of Religious Liberty. Now, this is a subject that's being talked about at the moment, and Sarah will be brilliant at unpacking the foundations of this vital concept. It's on October the 14th, 7.30 to 9. You can grab your tickets at the CPX website, publicchristianity.org. See you next time.